Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, Section 34. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, A Midsummer Ramble Through the Dolomites, by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 14. Capriel to Botsen, Part 1. The time at length came for leaving Capriel, for leaving Capriel and the Dolomites, and the pleasant untrodden ways of south-eastern Tyrol, and for drifting back again into the overcrowded highways of Italy and Switzerland. We were to re-enter the world at Botzen. All roads, perhaps, led to Rome, when the golden milestones stood in the center of the known universe. So, too, all these central Dolomite valleys and passes may be said to lead, somehow or other, to Botzen. We had plenty of routes to choose from. There was the comparatively new char road between Monte Latimer and the Rosengarten, known as the Caressa Pass. There was the way by Lavina Lungo and the Gaderthal to Bruneck, and the rail from Bruneck to Botzen. Again we might follow the long line of the Avisio through the Fassa, Fiemme, and Sembra valleys to Lavis, where the torrent meets the Isic, and the road meets the railway, not far from Trent or we might make for the Grodner Thal and the Sicer Alp, and strike the Brenner line at Outswang, a little above Botzen. We decided upon the last. It had many advantages over the other routes. It would take us first along the whole valley of Lavinilungo, show us the Sella Massive from three sides of its vast circumference, carry us to St. Ulrich, which is to South Tyrol in respect of the wood-carving trade, what Interlaken and Breens are to Switzerland, carry us over the Sicer Alp, close under the shadow of the Langkofel, the Plattkogel, and the Schlern, give us an opportunity of visiting the baths of Ratzes, and finally land us at Botzen in about a week, or even less, from the time of starting. We parted from friends when we parted from the hospitable Pezzies, and went away promising ourselves and them to return again soon to Capriel. The morning at five a.m. was cool and bright, but we had already been waiting some days for more favorable weather, and the sky was still unsettled. The church bells were ringing as we rode out of the village, and the usual procession of remonstrance was winding up towards the church. This time they were going to pray for dry weather. Che, che, said Clementi, contemptuously. That is the way they do, signora. The parroco watches his barometer, and when the rain is near falling, he calls the people together to pray for it. Perhaps it comes down in the middle of the mass. Then he cries, Echo il miracolo, and poor devils, they believe it. As far as Finizer's little inn at Andras, our road lay over ground already traversed. Then we crossed the torrent, left the valley of Buchenstein opening away to the right, and skirting now the rising slopes of the Col di Lana, continued our course up the main valley of Lavinalungo. At the large village known indifferently as Lavinilungo and Pieve d'Andres, we paused for an hour to feed the mules, and were served with excellent coffee in the cleanest of wooden rooms by the fattest of cheerful landladies. These people are also finisers, and their opposite neighbors, who likewise keep an inn, are finisers, which is more the perplexing as the one albergo is really comfortable, and the other of doubtful report. The good one, however, lies to the eastward, that is to say, to the right of a traveller coming up from Capriel. The village, which is the Capuolongo and post-town of the district, hangs on the verge of a steep precipice, 
and stands nearly fifteen hundred feet higher than Caprile. The view from the church terrace is quite magnificent, and not only commands the deep-cut course of the Cordoval from its source at the head of the valley down as far as Caprile, but brings in the Civita, the Marmolata, the Monte Padon, or Mesola, the Sella Massive, and a host of inferior peaks. From Pieve d'Andras, as far as Araba, a dismal-looking, wooden hamlet at the foot of the slopes below the southeastern precipices of the Sella, the valley rises slowly and steadily. As it rises it becomes barren and uninteresting. The jagged peaks of Monte Padon, emerging gradually from their hood of sullen clouds, show purply black against the sky. By and by, the winding way having brought us, somehow, in a line with the Val Fiorentino, and higher than the intervening slopes of Monte Frisolet, we are greeted with an unexpected view of the Pelmo. Shadowy, stately, very distant, it closes the end of an immensely long and glittering vista. We see it for a few moments only, and for the last time. As the path trends inward, it vanishes as the Civita and the Marmolata have by this time also vanished. We shall see them no more in the course of the present journey, and who can tell when, if ever, we shall see them again? And now the huge cella takes all the horizon, a pile of thick-set, tawny towers, like half a dozen stumpy pelmos clustered together. The mass seems naturally to divide itself into the five blocks respectively entitled the Boe, or Pordoi Spitz, closing the head of the Fassathal, the Sella Spitz, looking up the Grodnerthal, the Pisadel Spitz, overhanging the Colfasso Pass, the Mesor Spitz, facing Corfora and the Gaderthal, and the Campolungo Spitz, dominating the Campolungo Pass, which we are now approaching. As we strike northwards up the bare call to the right, leaving Araba and the valley of Lavinalungo far below, we have these huge, impending bastions always upon the left. The trees up here are few and stunted. The alp-roses are all off, and only the bare bushes remain. The golden lilies, the gentians, the rich wild-flowers that made most of the other passes beautiful, are all missing, and only a few scant blossoms of edelweiss hide themselves here and there among the moss-grown boulders. The mowers are at work, however, on all the slopes, getting in the meager hay harvest and singing at their work. First one voice, then another, takes up the yodel. It is echoed and flung back from side to side of the valley, now dying away, now breaking out again, sweet and liquid and wild as the notes of a bird, which, no doubt, all these Swiss and Tyrolean melodies were originally imitations. Now, as we near the top of the call, new mountains come rising on the northern horizon. The Santa Croce, or Heligan Crotz, a long mountain terminated towards the west with a couple of twin peaks, like a cathedral with two short spires. The dome-shaped Verellerberg, and the Sass Unger, or Sassander Kuffel, which is in reality an outpost of the Gernenzene Massive. Just as we have reached the top of the pass and begun to descend, a long, rumbling peal of distant thunder rolls up from the Lavina Lungo side, and looking back we see the clouds gathering fast at our heels. Down below, in a green, lonely hollow, lies Corfora, consisting of about a dozen houses and a tiny church. The way is steep and soft and slippery. The mules can hardly keep their feet, 
the storm is coming up. So we hurry and slide and stumble on as quickly as we can, and arrive presently in the midst of thunder and lightning at the door of Rotinera's Alberto. The little hostelry consists of two houses, an old and a new. The new house is reserved for travellers of the better class, and contains neither public room nor kitchen. The family occupy the old house, cook in it, and there entertain the guides and peasant travellers. The new house is made of sweet, fresh, bright pine wood. The upstairs rooms are all wood, floors, walls, and ceilings alike. The ground floor rooms are plastered and whitewashed. Who would have dreamed of finding art in such a place? Who would have dreamed that the grave old peasant covered with flower dust, who just now led the mules to the stable, was the father of a young painter of unusual promises? Yet it is so. Franz Rotinera, the son of our host, is an art student at Vienna. The house is full of his sketches. The first thing one sees on going upstairs is a full-length figure of Hofer on the landing, done on the wall in colors, life-size, admirably drawn, with a banner in his right hand and his rifle slung to his shoulder. In the largest bedroom, one end of which serves for a dining-room, hangs some capital oil studies of still life and several clever heads in crayons. And down below, in a sort of lumber-room, where the wet cloaks are hung to dry, every inch of whitewashed wall is covered with graffiti. Heads, arms, hands, caricatures, full-lengths, half-lengths, Frederick the Great, Goethe, Schiller, Mignon, Mephistopheles, Hamlet, the torso of the Belvedere, the fighting gladiator, the wild huntsman, and many more than I can remember or enumerate. The pretty little Madchen who serves our dinner is never tired of answering questions about mein Bruder Nachwien. He painted those two still-life pictures when he was here last summer, and the Hofer fresco four years ago. He was always drawing from earliest boyhood, and studied at Munich before he went to Vienna. He is at home now, came home last night to serve his annual month with the Corfera Rifle Corps, and has just gone over the hill to see friends at some neighboring village. Later in the day, when he returns from over the hill, the young artist at my request pays us a visit. He is not yet five-and-twenty, and is shy as a girl. We talk a little about art, but as Herr Franz is not very strong in Italian, and as the writer's German is limited, our aesthetic conversation is necessarily somewhat dislocated. I could gather enough, however, to see that he is all the steady industry, the patient ambition, and the deep inward enthusiasm of a German art student, and I believe he is destined to make his mark by and by. End of section 34